Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the second hour of our broadcast and podcast. I can only assume that you are here to revel in wrong think. I got to give, I should probably pay a royalty to my friend Eric Peters. He uttered those words the other day, something about wrong think, and I thought, that's what we do. That's what we celebrate here. We, we, it's, it's not just being contrary. It's the idea that, you know, there are so many forces out there working against us. This is particularly true as it pertains to, to really essential things. Your personal liberty, your freedom of conscience, your rights to private property, your, your ability to participate in the free market, all under attack. And I mean, really, literally, in some cases, under attack. And when you stand up for these things, no matter how well-intentioned, no matter how diplomatic, you are very quickly labeled as, uh, what's the word? Oh, yes, an extremist for doing so. Anyway, so there, there's no other choice, at least for those who want to be free, but to just, uh, you know, shrug off the insults and uh, put on your big boy or big girl pants and embrace the wrong think. Since everything that's outside the approved narrative is going to be dubbed wrong think. Yeah, go ahead. Let's revel in it. And enjoy some freedom while we're at it. All right. I want to introduce uh, my guest. My guest is James Fellows. James, are you there? Yes, sir. All right. I don't know how to introduce you, James, other than you and I are friends on Facebook. And you asked me a most interesting question, which is why you are on the show today. You asked me about uh, the OCE and whether I knew anything about it before we discuss the Office of Constitutional Enforcement. Let's talk a little bit about you. Tell me who you are. Tell me what uh, makes you tick. Oh, uh, I'm a veteran uh, of the Army, uh, combat, went to Iraq a few times, Afghanistan a couple times, and, uh, you know, after I got out, I kind of muddled around the uh, outside for a while, and then, uh, you know, it, it, something just clicked in me, and it was like, hey, you know, this this ain't right. What, what are we doing wrong here? You know, this is about 2015, and... Uh, you know, I've been searching for the issue, and, you know, I think I found it. But uh, a friend of mine, Daryl Allen, he uh, he uh, confronted me uh, during the new year and uh, asked me about his, uh, doing this OCE thing, uh, Office of Constitutional Enforcement, and uh, I think it's a good idea because it's a tool, basically a tool, to, uh, oh, crap. <laughs> I gotta go for now. Oh, do you? Yeah, oh, you're, you're, I, this is a cliffhanger. Okay, that's okay. Call, call me back. You've got my, you've got my studio number. Call me back when you get the chance. Yes, sir. Okay, thanks. Well, folks, that is what we call a tease. So, coming up later on the uh, Loving Liberty broadcast. James is going to call in, and we're going to talk about this. Now, I have to tell you, the reason I was most intrigued by his uh, his question about what do you know about the Office of Constitutional Enforcement, is that really seems to be one of the areas where, where as a people, as you know, as I mentioned in the last hour, where the, the, the repository, the sovereign of power is in the people, we the people, not just the government. It's not in the government. But for some reason, we've been very... Uh, lax 
or unskilled, maybe it's more unskilled than lax when it comes to absolutely enforcing what the Constitution says. So I'm anxious to learn more about it. I want to know because, uh, frankly, inquiring minds like mine want to know about this. I'm convinced that there's more we can do. There are friends, and, and I, I have some very dear friends who are very much on board for, you know, maybe it's time we have a constitutional convention. And I get the frustration, right? Because you look at what's going on. Congress just continually ignores it. They just, they, the Supreme Court finds ways to, to work around the constitutional limits or separations of power. It seems like they always have some angle figured out to where whatever big government wants ends up becoming policy. You know, even as the politicians are trying hand over fist to convince us, no, 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 this is what you wanted. This is what you asked us to do. So we have to do better. And, and the time was where it was the states, you know, the members who came together to form that more perfect union. The states and the people were the final arbiters of what does the Constitution mean. But then came Marbury v. Madison and, you know, the uh, Supreme Court in an effort to settle a dispute between the president and, you know, the, the secretary who had been appointed by another president said, hey, you know what? We'll go ahead and assume the responsibility of telling you what is and what isn't constitutional. And in so doing, one branch of the government set itself up to be the arbiter of what the other branches of government could do. It was probably well-intentioned. But the bottom line is it, it opened the door for judicial activism and for the continued growth and the continued role of the Supreme Court in, in some ways of ruling the land, which we got a good lesson in earlier this week. So when it comes to rewriting that Constitution... I don't think the deficiency is actually in the Constitution itself. I think the deficiency is in the people and in our understanding of it and our willingness to insist that it be observed with with very strict consideration to what was the original intent of those men who sat down and wrote it out. And I understand that sounds very sexist, Brian. Why don't you say those people? And I don't want to get caught up in the whole intersectionality debate. But the founders were not a bunch of amateurs who sat down to just, you know, come up with, hey, man, what's a mission statement for our fraternity here, bros? You know, toss me a brewski. They drew upon history, thousands of years of history, as well as what had worked and what hadn't. And they gave examples. If you read the Federalist Papers as well as the Anti-Federalist Papers, you'll see that their debates were very, very well informed. This wasn't just haphazard. Well, let's fly by the seat of our pants and see if it works out. I heard my friend Joe Carey describe it uh, like this. They were trying to create a system that couldn't be gamed by those who were part of the system. And you have to admit, for at least a couple hundred years, the Constitution has served as a pretty good rule book or a pretty good limit on those mischief makers who wanted to turn government strictly to their own interests and their own powers. But the problem isn't in the way that it was written. It's more in the way that we have allowed um, politicians and power seekers and opportunists to come along and persuade us that, no, 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 this is what you want. You want these subsidies. You want us to take care of this. You want to outsource this to your government. 
Never mind that it was never something that was supposed to be within that government's purview, or at least the federal government's purview in the first place. You don't have to be a constitutional scholar. I don't know why some people get the impression that, well, you know, if if you're going to be a constitutional scholar, you probably should be going around with little Ben Franklin spectacles and wearing a three corner hat, you know, and and, uh, you know, going around spouting pithy revolutionary war sayings. Not at all. But you do have to be willing to look at the original sources, not just the text of the Constitution itself, the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Papers. Look at the sources that inspired those founders as they drafted the Constitution. What did Montesquieu have to contribute to their article when he wrote The Spirit of Laws? And if you're not familiar with Montesquieu, hey, there's nothing holding you back. There's this thing. It's a fairly recent invention, a library. Perhaps you've heard of it. And and, oh, and it's backed up by another invention, the World Wide Web, where information that you seek is available if you want to seek it. How else are you going to learn about what what John Locke had to say about our natural rights and what that relation of our natural rights to legitimate civil government ought to be? Is it going to take time? Yeah, it is. I mean, you might have to miss out on fantasy football for a couple of nights, or you might have to apply yourself over a period of time to become conversant in this understanding. But that brings us to the question which really should have been on our minds all along. What exactly is your freedom worth? How much is it worth to you to live under properly limited government? Now, some people would tell you that's a very anti-government thing to say, but are you listening to the words? Properly limited government. I know, I know, I have my friends, Daniel, I'm looking your direction, who uh, think there is no such thing as proper government. I beg to differ. Even though I take a pretty hard stance against a lot of the stuff that government is doing on a day-to-day basis. I believe there was wisdom. And I believe there was wisdom beyond just mortal wisdom that went into the penning of that document. I'll come right out and say it. I think that there was providential help in putting it on paper. And it's, it's, it's not perfect, but can you think of anything within the last 240 years that has come close to providing the kind of framework and stability that that document has. How many other countries have changed their governments numerous times? All right, we've got work to do. It's a worthy cause. I hope James will call back so we can discuss it. Stick with us. We'll be back right after these messages. All right, welcome back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm going to hold off opening up the phone lines here for a little bit because I'd really like to see if my friend James is going to call me back. If not, he will uh, go down in history with the record of the shortest interview ever on this program. It's kind of a cool record, too, man. If you can say stuff that quick, then, uh, you know, more power to you. Hey, since I was quoting some old guys, you know, old dead white guys in the in the last segment, I thought maybe I'll double down and continue on in that vein. There was a really excellent article that was published on the Foundation for Economic Education earlier today. It's from Caroline Brashears. The title, Adam Smith's Three Moral Principles for Navigating Our National Crisis. 
Now, I know you think you you think I'm just flexing, right? Showing off that big chess club brain for you. First of all, I was never on the chess club, but uh, thank you for thinking so. No, it's more than anything. I want to put this in, in front of you. And I think Carolyn Brashears does a marvelous case. There's a marvelous job, rather, of explaining here how somebody who lived, you know, back during the the time of the uh, the American founding. He was a contemporary, even if he wasn't an, an American. Can still be very true today. I think this is a perfect example of wisdom, by which I mean knowledge that is not reliant upon the time in which it was, you know, put pen to paper and someone wrote it down. It survives the test of time. It's true in all times, in all places. So if you want a little practical guidance from the Scottish economist's theory of moral sentiments, here you go. Carolyn Brashear starts out by noting, America is on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Protesters are burning flags, rioters are burning cars, and people are metaphorically burning bridges, rendering it impossible to speak across the chasm of political indifference, or difference, rather. She says it's time to pause in our burning down of our national house. As the talking heads warn about in their iconic song, watch out, you might get what you asked for. To avoid destroying everything good as well as bad, she says we need to return to the principles Adam Smith established in his theory of moral sentiments to practice sympathy, to regulate our own behavior and to insist on justice as the pillar of our society. So let's tackle that first one. Understanding the fortunes of others. For Smith, she says, sympathy involves trying to understand the situation of someone else. It means projecting ourselves into that individual's place, seeing and feeling the word from that position. If our brother is on the rack, Smith says, by the imagination, we place ourselves in his situation. We conceive ourselves enduring all the same torments. We enter it as were as it were into his body and become in some measure the same person with him and thence form some idea of his of his sensations and even feel something which, though weaker in degree, is not altogether unlike them. End quote. Carolyn Brashear says such sympathy enables us to imagine what it might be like to be brutalized by a policeman. And such sympathy enables us to imagine being a retired policeman killed while protecting others from rioters. Such sympathy enables us to imagine being discriminated against due to our appearance. And such sympathy enables us to imagine a shopkeeper whose life's work is literally smashed to pieces due to her success. So for Smith, sympathy doesn't mean that we agree with everything the other person does. It means we try to understand so we can judge impartially and move forward. Next, she talks about flattening the sharpness of our tone. The next step is to regulate our own behavior. And Carolyn Brashear says an individual can only establish sympathy, Smith advises, by lowering his passions to that pitch in which the spectators are capable of going along with him. He must flatten his tone. Now here she says, pause a moment. Are you posting on social media about your desire to have political opponents fired or evicted from their homes? Are you sending emails that emphasize the sufferings of one group, but ignore the devastation of another? Are you defacing someone's property? Are you, ridicu- are you ridiculing those who differ from you as stupid? 
She says, by stepping outside ourselves to judge our behavior, we evoke Smith's impartial spectator process. We set aside our bias so that we can judge the right thing to do. We lay down our matches and we start laying down a stronger foundation for our country. Finally, preserving the main pillar of society. That process includes beneficence or kindness. Smith describes it as the ornament which embellishes society. But the critical component is justice, which Smith calls that main pillar which upholds the whole edifice. If it is removed, the great, the immense fabric of human society must in a moment crumble into atoms. Now, Carolyn Brashear says justice is necessary because the violation of justice is injury. It does real and positive hurt to some particular persons for motives which are naturally disapproved of. And the most sacred laws of justice concern three things, one's life, one's property, and the promises or contracts made to one personally. Today, she says, we need justice for all who have been killed, whether from the brutality of police officers or the brutality of rioters. We need justice for all those who have lost their property due to the greed and mischief of looters. And we need justice for all those whose rights have been violated by government representatives and regulations of all kinds. Now, Carolyn Brashear says, practicing sympathy, self-regulation, and justice requires action. As the talking heads say, I don't know what you expect, staring into the TV set. But the action must be to rebuild, to restore, not to stoke the flames, but to embrace the virtues that can restore our nation's house. That's pretty tough to do, though, right? I mean, it sounds good. You're probably nodding your head going, yeah, you know, actually, she makes sense. But putting it into practice, nah, not quite as easy. That's a tough one. I had a friend who posted something uh, yesterday that I thought was interesting. Interesting enough, I want to share it with you. He talked about, he says, you know, I'm never going to ask you to unfriend me. And he says, in 10 years, I've never unfriended anyone. But he says, I can absolutely tell when I've been on Facebook. It has an immediate negative effect on my mood. And some of the people who responded said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was that way only with Twitter. I felt so much better once I got away from Twitter because I just, I just was too involved in fighting too many battles with too many other people. And it got me thinking. And I decided, you know, I absolutely reserve the right to limit outside toxicity in my life. But having said that, I'm also gradually waking up to the understanding that my time is best spent working on rooting out my own inner toxicity. I want to practice what I preach. That is, before I go fixing you, let me see if I can at least get a good start on fixing myself. It turns out that's a pretty long-term project. All right, let's go back to the phone. 801-331-8113. Hello there. You betcha, Brian. Uh, Jury nullification is not a radical idea. It's not a theory. It was normal behavior back in the day. In California's original constitution, the people were reminded that the jury always gets to decide all things. Facts, laws, situations, empathy, sympathy. Easy, easy problem to solve. 
if you trust your neighbors to do the right thing. No, that's a good point. So, so tell me this, Jared. What is it that has has uh, taken that trust away in your in your mind? Where did we lose it? Well, years ago, we started going to government church, and we've been taught false ideas about law. School goes right out of, right out the window when you go back to work and get back into the system. We believe the state is, people throw out this phrase, the law of the land. Right. They have no idea what they're saying. They have no idea what they're saying. That's when, anyway, tell them, say, hey, all right, tell me about the law of the sea. That'll dry up that conversation. <laughs> hey, thanks for the call. Oh, yes, maritime law, mateys. <laughs> Maybe we'll touch on that when we come back. This is Loving Liberty. Stay with us. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm going to go ahead and open up the lines here, 801-331-8113. I'm not feeling very hopeful that uh, James is going to be able to call me back, so I will move on. Hey, have you been approached by contact tracing individuals or representatives? I'm, I'm just curious. I found a great article on the American Institute for Economic Research website about doubts about contact tracing. This is from Edward Peter Stringham. And if you have some misgivings about that, I guess the first thing I can tell you is, brother, you're not alone. Uh, this is uh, this is something that makes a lot of us uneasy, if only because it, it seems to be compiling a database that uh, really gets down to we need to keep track of everywhere you go, everyone you come in contact with, how long you were there. And it may be something you forget about. I mean, for crying out loud, let's let's just say, for instance, you went to a restaurant and it was finally, you know, we, we're going to get out. The economy's uh, opening up again. The governor's been kind enough to move us to stage yellow. Yay. You know, we've got a little taste of freedom again. So me and the missus, we decide we're going to go out for Chinese food. We go to our favorite little Chinese spot. And, oh, it's good and everything. But as they go to seat us, when we come to the to the restaurant, you know, of course, everything's spread out, socially distanced. And before they will seat us, they want to know, what is your email address? What is your phone number? What is your mailing address? And because we're hungry, maybe we decide, well, let's not uh, deny this and let's just tell them what they want to know. And we go on our way. We have a lovely meal. We go on about our business. But a few weeks later, someone shows up on our doorstep with a swab in hand. Excuse me. According to our records, you may have been exposed to COVID-19 when you were attending such and such restaurant. May we test you? Now, I understand there's a core group of people out there who probably would look at that with, I don't know, maybe with teary-eyed gratitude. Thank you. Thank you so much for looking out for us. And yes, please, by all means, shove that Q-tip up my nose and start rotating it. I can hardly wait. Doesn't sound like fun to me, but that's apparently how it's done. I'm more along the lines of, I don't want to be tested because what comes next? What does this lead to? And this is... I, I'm sure I'm not the only one asking this. Uh, maybe maybe I'm just the only one dumb enough to admit I'm really that paranoid. I don't want that kind of information being kept 
on me and about everywhere I go and everyone that I talk with, even if it is, quote, in the interest of public health. Because I have this sneaking suspicion, just based on what we've seen in the last three months, that some authoritarian somewhere wants to take that concept and run with it and turn it into a system of total surveillance and control. All in the name of health, mind you, but, you know, wink, wink, it does, you know, solve a few other little problems we've had in keeping tabs on everybody at all times. So this article from Edward Peter Stringham says in the movies, it all seems easy, right? There's a pandemic. You discover the sick person. You trace where he or she has been and with whom you notify and test those people, find the positive cases and trace further. So, for instance, in the 2011 movie Contagion, they find the original carrier and trace her steps back to a restaurant in China and the chef who made her food and the pig the chef slaughtered and then to the bat that fell into the trough. It's science. But in real life, he says it's a different matter. Somehow during this pandemic, the idea of contact tracing has been held out as some sort of panacea. Your new smartphone software probably has the technology which is set to alert you if you come near someone previously seen as COVID positive or if you enter into some hot zone. Or if you get the virus, others will be notified of your presence, kind of like a leper bell from the Middle Ages. They know somebody unclean is in the vicinity. Well, in this case, Edward Peter Stringham says, I have my doubts that most people want that on their phone, but most won't know how to turn it off. And by the way, there is a link in the article explaining how to turn it off. So if for no other reason, go to the show notes at LovingLiberty.net and you can find out for yourself in the article Doubts About Contact Tracing. Now, regarding these apps, Brookings Institute writes, the lure of automating the painstaking process of contact tracing is apparent. But to date, no one has demonstrated that it's possible to do so reliably despite numerous concurrent attempts. Apps that notify participants of disclosure could, on the margins and in the right conditions, help direct testing resources to those at higher risk. Anything else strikes us as implausible at best and dangerous at worst. Then you have Sheridan Prasso of Bloomberg offering additional insights. Quote, Of the 47 contact tracing apps already in use in 28 countries and as of mid-May, 23% of them had no privacy policy. 53% don't disclose how long they plan to keep user data. 60% had no publicly stated anonymity measures. Top 10 VPNs at Woodhams found no one has reached the 60% download level that's needed for this to be effective. And an April white paper by the American Civil Liberties Union said the most location tracking methods used by apps are too inaccurate to be useful for automated tracking. Now, the article goes on to say a poll by Axios and Ipsos Group found 66 percent of respondents said they would reject an app developed by tech companies and even more wouldn't download one from the U.S. government. Cliff Young, president of Ipsos U.S. Public Affairs, said the whole concept of American democracy is about local control and civil liberties. That was in a statement with the poll results. So back to the article. Edward Peter Stringham says, in addition to contact tracing apps, right now governments are hiring thousands of people to work for government as detectives 
through widespread contact tracing. And many officials say the government must hire 300,000, that would be one out of every thousand people in the country, to work as a contact tracer. And this is how it works. Someone tests positive for COVID-19. The contact tracer then investigates where that person lives, his family and friends, and compiles a list of everyone with whom the COVID-19 patient has had contact. The contact tracer then knows everyone who has potentially been exposed and can be in touch with them. But tracing the source and all possible people exposed to this airborne virus is easier said than done. Consider the typical New Yorker who may have in the last week been to the store twice, took delivery of packages from two UPS employees, ridden the elevator with 20 other people, and been on the subway 10 times. So if you touch a surface in Penn Station, it may have been touched by any of the other 600,000 passengers who historically go through Penn Station every single day. Just count up all the thousands of surfaces you've touched in the past week and all the people you see. So then what does the investigator do? Well, the investigator makes a list, investigates for phone numbers and addresses, and then taps a caseworker to start making calls. How would you like to be getting this on the other end of the line? Yes, you've been in contact with someone who is COVID positive. We would like you to come in for a test. The contact tracer then requires that everyone potentially exposed to the virus stay home for two weeks. Okay, you want to talk about a way to panic the public? Just the prospect of kicking off this incredibly invasive process might deter people from ever going to the hospital in the first place. But let's say that you can somehow develop a map of the travels of a virus from here to there and there, and you can watch this visualization. What precisely can you do with this information? There's zero hope that you can somehow freeze all these people in place, and even if you could... Nothing about mapping and tracing causes the virus to go away. A Yale graduate student was recently working as a contact tracer and is alerting the public about some of the downsides of how contact tracing in Connecticut is working. She found the job frustrating. She didn't like poking into people's lives. All she was able to do was warn people and offer vague guidance. So imagine getting routine calls from government officials who work like a detective, asking about co-workers met, errands run, shops visited, events attended, and queries like, what did you have for breakfast, for lunch, and did you go shopping? Did you go to the barber shop?" And then imagine getting calls each time you were at a place that had a COVID-19 carrier. Now here the author says, I personally like to keep my interaction with the other 4.3 million daily subway riders in New York to a minimum. What will people even be able to do with such information? And then you have to wonder about the coercive aspects of this. A Q&A from Washington State offers some not very comforting assurances. Question, what happens if I don't comply? Answer, if health officials think you're a risk and are worried about you not complying, they'll ask you to sign a form which says you will voluntarily self-isolate. If you still don't comply, you could face a fine or jail time. Oh boy. Question, will I or my kids be placed in isolation centers? Answer, no. The state has some isolation centers available for foster kids or for people with no safe place to go. At no point will anyone drag you or your kids out of your home. Question, why is the National Guard involved? Answer, they're only acting as volunteers, not law enforcement. They'll help like they're doing at the food banks in town. Everybody feeling soothed? Everybody satisfied with those answers? (laughs) 
note, got a little funny flutter in your stomach? Yeah, me too. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back right after this. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. We're talking about contact tracing. I'll admit I'm a skeptic. I'm not really interested in uh, giving all that information and having them go out and contact everybody I may have come in contact with. As we came to the break, by the way, again, 801-331-8113. If you have thoughts on this, I'd love to hear your take. You know, there were these questions from a Washington State uh, question and answer uh, basically, this this was to give people, you know, to assuage their their uh, concerns about contact tracing. Things like, well, what if I don't comply? Will I be placed in an isolation center? Will the national? Why is the national guard involved? I like this last question here. Will my privacy be violated? And the answer is very straightforward. No, your information is confidential, just like it is at a doctor's office. And at this point, Edward Peter Stringham brings out the idea, but okay, imagine being assured of the same privacy as a a visit to the doctor's office, rather, except the contact tracer then tracks down and interviews everyone with whom you interacted. A little bit of a difference there. It's not quite the same thing. Contact tracing may make sense for certain diseases, but it turns out there's no evidence that this novel coronavirus can be contained by contact tracing. And there's a number of articles in here. I'm not going to go into every one of them, but I would encourage you take a look at them. These are from a number of different authorities from the World Health Organization, many different medical doctors. The bottom line is it's it's not a panacea, which doesn't necessarily mean therefore we should never even consider it. But perhaps we should carefully consider what some of the unintended effects of contact tracing might be right can we at least agree on that that way we don't maybe paint ourselves into a corner where we're looking around a few years from now going how did it come to this edward peter stringham has done a pretty good job of of pointing out here that you know this this is data that's being collected that could be abused and if, if you don't believe it could be abused, can I remind you, it wasn't that long ago. It was just a few weeks ago. We were seeing people legit arrested for going to church or going to the, to the gym to work out. So it's hard to play this off as, well, it's really not going to be that big of a deal. But, you know, we have to do it because there's illness out there. The very last paragraph in his column here says public health experts caution that a law enforcement approach to combating disease is less effective than relying on voluntary measures and compliance. Sweden, thank you. You proved that for us quite a while back here. That's because an enforcement approach often sparks counterproductive resistance and evasion, and it tends to sour the relationship between citizens and their government at a time when trust is of paramount importance. On the other hand, good public health measures leverage people's own incentives to report disease and help stop its spread. Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't people be a little more willing to say, hey, I want to get tested because I'm not because I'm I'm concerned that, you know, I'm typhoid Mary, but 
because I know that the authorities aren't going to use this as an excuse to whisk me off. I mean, we saw a video of this happening in China early on in this crisis. We've seen enough ugliness to last us all for a long time. All I'm suggesting here is think so carefully before you allow another bit of the apparatus to be built that could be used in ways other than simply trying to track the spread of a particular disease. One of the questions we should be asking ourselves is what other applications might uh, a particularly ambitious leader, politician, power seeker, what might they look at this and say, ooh, this would be handy. We want to keep track of, you know, um, something else. You know, as a gun owner, that's that's one of those things that crosses my mind. Yeah, I don't want him knowing. Oh, he, he's been uh, back to the uh, shooting range or he's been to the sporting goods store. It's not government's business. And it shouldn't be. And just watch. This becomes the norm. You'll see uh, firearms being treated as a public health crisis in the very same way that COVID-19 is. Well, we're sorry we had to come in and take everything away, but, you know, it is a public health crisis. Actually, I'm going to take this opportunity to segue into something that has, has been on my mind for a little bit. And, and I'm praying that it doesn't come off as weird as it might. I know. Big confidence builder, right? So you've probably had the chance or maybe you've heard about uh, the video of the guy down in Albuquerque, New Mexico. There was a big protest, a statue of a conquistador that uh, people were looking to take down. And there were actually, I guess, members of a militia group that were there protecting either. They were either protecting the statue or just, you know, providing some kind of security for, uh, you know, the crowd as, as there were activists there trying to pull down or deface the statue. Well, long story short, uh, there was there was a lot of words being sent back and forth. The militia group, by the way, on their best behavior, none of them were instigators, but a uh, a city council candidate or a former city council candidate ended up getting in some kind of a scuffle. He kept getting bumped by this young black woman who apparently was part of Antifa. And uh, finally, he got tired of being bumped by her, turned around and pulled her down to the ground with force, you know, just to, to get her off of him. And, of course, that was it. There we are. We're victims. Antifa comes rushing in. And, you know, somebody ran up with a skateboard, one of their preferred weapons, and was whacking the guy with it. Well, the guy disengaged. He took off. He's running down the street. Someone started yelling, he's a cop. Get him. He's a cop. Get him. And they start chasing him down the street. Now, keep in mind, I don't think he did the right thing, first of all, in it even being there. If you know there's going to be trouble, you've, you've really got to be... Uh, aware of it and not make it your own. But at least when there was trouble, when when he pulled her down, I don't think that was necessarily justified either. But he disengaged, which was probably the smartest thing he did all day, and took off down the street. Well, predictably, like pack animals, the pack followed him. And they're screaming things like, get him, get him, get him. And then someone starts shouting, kill him, kill him. Someone tackled him to the ground. He got up. Someone else came up, took a swipe at him with another skateboard. And at least at one point, somebody there, I've seen the still photographs, introduced a knife into the situation. And it was at this point that the guy who had been running away pulled a gun and shot four shots and dropped one of the punks right where he stood. The guy survived, I think, but he's not in very good shape. This was not an upgrade to his current state of health. 
Now, immediately, the militia members came and surrounded the guy. They disarmed him. They stood on his gun. He was in shock. I mean, he was, you know, shocked that he just shot another human being. But uh, the police came, arrested the shooter, proned out all the militia guys, took their guns away, you know, just got control of the situation. I don't think they arrested them. But there are a couple of things that come to mind here. If you knew that there was a likelihood that you were going to encounter people who were on the prod for a confrontation. Yes, Antifa, I'm looking your way. You guys are masters of this. Swarm people, escalate, escalate, escalate. And then when someone finally lashes out or tries to get away or drive away, you play the part of the victim. Oh, look what happened. Ah, Look at us. We're the victims here. If you're carrying a firearm, you especially have a duty to avoid situations where you may find yourself in a confrontation. I know that's not as macho as, well, I'd go in there and show them who's boss, but you got to think a little more wisely about this. This doesn't mean you have to hole up in your home and just sit there and shake in fear with your gun in your hand, but don't put yourself in, in harm's way. Don't put yourself in the way of someone who wants to pick a fight. And I don't know what's going to happen. I've heard some of the charges against the guy who shot have been dropped. They were going to charge him with a hate crime. But what a terrible situation to be in in the first place. He literally was in danger of grave bodily injury or losing his life. The shooting was probably justified. If I was on the jury, I would say, yeah, he he was justified. But the part that I want to rewind to is maybe he shouldn't have been there in the first place. Maybe he shouldn't have gone to that protest. And this leads me to a topic that I'm not going to have time to address today, but I am going to bring up tomorrow just because I want I want to explore this a little bit further. What are you doing within your own neighborhood to provide a protection plan for your neighborhood? Now, I'm not talking about creating a bunch of citizen soldiers or, you know, build your own militia in your neighborhood. What are you and your neighbors doing in terms of talking to one another? What would we do? If our neighborhood came under the kind of unrest that we've seen in other places, if you live in the suburbs, you might think, oh, yeah, it's, you know, it's pretty far cry from, you know, what you'd see in in a more uh, urban area. But I'm going to suggest maybe just maybe that's a conversation that more of us should be having. Who do you know in your neighborhood that has medical training? Who knows how to fight fires? Does anybody have military or law enforcement experience that could teach you how to keep a really effective neighborhood watch so when trouble comes, you're not taken by surprise? There was a time when that would have sounded super radical, but I'm betting not so much anymore. This is Loving Liberty. Talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.